having a great PDAC. We wish we could all be together to raise a glass, but in place of that, we thought it would be fun to have a drink together virtually. Today, in honor of our 10th episode of On the Rocks, we're here live with some of our past guests, Phil Hopwood, Tom Albanese, Miranda Worstiak, Danielle Spethman, Frank Mariage, Chad Peters, David Cease, Jim Culver, and Drew Craig. This amazing group includes experts in mining law, AI, sustainability, seabed mining, investing, and more. Thanks for joining us live as we chat on the rocks. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for uh, what we're thinking of as the first PDAC 2021 cocktail party, since we're all taking presentations from our offices. First, I wanted to thank all of our special guests we have joining us today. First off, Nick LePen, who writes The Nugget for Prospector, also with Visual Capitalist. He's going to be co-hosting with me tonight to just keep it a little fun. And then so far on our guest list, we have almost every single guest that we've had on for On the Rocks this season. So if you haven't listened yet, you can find On the Rocks on any of the podcast apps, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can listen to our episodes with each of these wonderful guests. We've got Chad Peters, Danielle Spethman, Drew Craig, Frank Mariage, Jim Culver, Miranda Worstiak, Phil Hopwood, and Tom Albanese. So thank you guys all for joining us on a Wednesday night of PDAC. And let's start off with a cheers. 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 Over the, over the Zoom line. So how's everybody? Uh, first off, who who is doing PDAC this year? Everybody? I am. I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's virtual. Yeah. Agreed. I've, I've done a few bits, but I've got to tell you, I mean, the whole world of PDAC is not PDAC, isn't it? It's the PDAC. Yeah. It's, it's all the, the meetings, meetings you have all around it. <laughs> Pretty hard to do when we're in kind of like lockdown situation. Well, if, if there's a point system now, so you can collect points for downloading stuff. I don't know what my score is at, but I don't know. It's a little bit different. You know, they can actually track if I'm awake or if I'm there. So it's a bit different. Yeah. And let's not forget that a year ago, the article that started it all, that one case at PDAC, it was a Wednesday morning and I get to my firm at Faskin. And obviously Faskin's got a really big contingent present at PDAC. And then I started getting a call from Human Resources. Hey, Frank, how you doing? How you feeling? <laughs> two hours later, Frank, how you doing? <laughs> and two hours later, I get a call from my managing partner. I said, Frank, Go home. Come yeah. back in a week. And well, everything shut down the day after. Well, and you had well, one of the last parties, right? I mean, several of us were there at your, you guys had a reception at PDAC last year, earlier. Yeah, it was a Sunday night. There was a, probably a good 500 people there. Yeah. I think the last one I was at, Emily, was this Tuesday night with you. And then everybody kind of dispersed into PJ O'Brien's for multiple pints of Guinness for Irish night. So, <laughs> and that, and yeah. that is always a very, very busy do. <laughs> Everybody's packed into that one. You know, there's there's yeah. no, no space to swing a cap in that one. So yeah. yeah, and the and the lovely Michael Power at the door, making sure everybody's behaving reasonably well. <laughs> so well, yeah. you're telling everybody to do like the fist bumps or the elbows, right? I remember laughing about it at the party. I wasn't take, personally wasn't taking it super seriously at the time. How how times have changed? Because we even had actually 
Jim, um, we had an analog and prospector like cocktail party, right? A on the rocks whiskey yeah. party to, to kind of launch and show our prospector for the first time too. So it was wow, last time I think I traveled. So yeah, a long year. But Emily, to your point, uh, last year I remember walking the halls and you know you'd go up to see people you know or clients and friends, and you start off with a no, no go, no, no go, and then finish with a with a bump. <laughs> you didn't know. Yeah, like, or an or it was a, weird. Yeah, an elbow. Really, really weird. I was on a panel last year, and and one of the guys on the panel was from BHP, uh, and he he literally he flat out refused to go within three feet of people, and he said, "I'm not shaking your hand. I'm not like it. We're not doing it." Like, and it was it was like, "Oh, okay. So are you going to sit at the far end of the panel?" But he said, "Nope, haven't uh, shaken anybody's hand. Haven't." So mm-hmm. where I was running around <laughs> hugging people. <laughs> uh. Well, but in the meantime, though, I mean, both Chad and Danielle, you guys have both been out in the field. And Drew, have you, you guys have been out doing work in this crazy environment? Yeah, we we're lucky. We our whole team lives in Nevada, so we we don't have to travel. We bought a camper and uh, pretty much camped at the site for four months last year, pretty much to avoid staying in hotels, eating in restaurants and stuff. So no one got sick. We were able to keep working, so it worked out good. And we yeah. are lucky. We're lucky because Northern Ontario had very few cases. Mm-hmm. So if you traveled from the south to the north, you tested before you went. Uh, the hotels, the motel where we stayed, you know, the maids don't come in. They stay outside. They pick up the garbage. People wore masks. Yeah, no, we were very fortunate. And you know, drilling happens outside. Our work happens outside. So our team was from is local. So there was, you know, they were fine. But I would remember leaving the PDAC. We were in the core shop and there they had handed out all of these uh, hand sanitizers. Mm. People were in the core shack. Everyone was gone, and all I could see up and down the road was hand sanitizers. So I went and I scooped as many as I could, not knowing that it was really going to be as real as it was the day after. And yeah. hand sanitizer was all of a sudden a hot commodity. <laughs> I had a bag full. Oh, look at that. But anyway, yeah, it's incredible that the year's gone by so quickly. Yeah. I think we're starting to see some sort of suggestions that things are potentially going to open up again. So, I mean, I, I made it out to Zambia back in October last year for... To the 10 days and, and covered a lot of ground in, in the country and they were pretty relaxed about things we washed our hands used a hand sanitizer we were on big planes little planes in the back of a truck and planes trains and automobiles type thing and interesting had to get the test to get out of the country you know even before getting back to the uk and then filling in all the paperwork and stuff so i think we're headed in the right direction i think for isolated groups that can just get an rv and and crack on and do their own thing if if you happens to be on home home ground so to speak um i think work will still progress and let's face it there's plenty of expats out in various countries around the world who are who are already there at varying rates of success with the 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 vaccination program but you know this is this is the new normal this is something we're going to have to deal with for at least the next couple of years but 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 at the same time i mean because you're based in the uk aren't you drew yeah. Yeah. So which, which is like powering through, as is the United States, no, appears powering through its vaccination schedule. But then you've got like Australia over, over, over my shoulder. You can see that, which has effectively locked yourself out of the rest of the world now in terms yeah. of, you know, and we'll not, not have vaccines until the latter part of the year. And so West Australia is basically seceded from the rest of the country at this stage, it appears. And then we have Canada, which is when are we going to get our vaccines here? You know, maybe by July or August, more likely September. 
coming to Florida. (laughs) Mexico's probably worse than any of those. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be very difficult. I think it's going to be different different schedules of opening up and the like and uh, and making do. But I, I don't see any real opening of international travel until... Maybe if we're lucky, October, November this year. Yeah. Of course, the good news is that you can do things that that you used to do by traveling over Zoom. We've made two acquisitions this year. We probably would have only done one had we been able to travel. We couldn't travel, so you might as well do something. We made another acquisition. True. Yeah. I mean, we marketed an IPO with um, yeah. same thing. We did an IPO. We thought we'd have to do a you know fifty thousand dollar roadshow, and instead yeah. we we closed it in three days over Zoom and saved yeah. a ton of money. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've done. I've run two independent peer reviews for projects in the Middle East with fairly extensive teams across the UK, uh, the, in in Saudi as it happens, and Australia. We've done managed to do everything over WebEx or, or Zoom. Um, you know, it's been required a little bit more thought in terms of how we get the data and information out to everybody. People were getting wrapped around the axle by, oh golly, you've not done a field visit, you've not gone and kicked the rocks. It's like I don't need to kick the rocks. There's oodles and oodles of information. Um, we don't need to, to worry about that and had some very successful successful reports so i think i think we're headed to a new way of going about doing business and with all these digital resources out there uh, these virtual tours and just there is so much data available you can sort of have this sort of almost a digital twin to go and visit the, big, um, the biggest problem we've seen has been regulatory in that the uh, agencies that you need a permit from mm. or you need a sign off nobody's there nobody's working that's true both in the states and and in mexico yeah. And and it's true in Canada. Yeah, just right. Yeah, look, I think we're I think we're making it all work. But boy, it's good to get together with teams every once in a while because <laughs> yeah, you, get a, you get a room full of engineers that aren't in the same room at the at the end of a Zoom meeting. They sort of go off in different directions. So you, you, yeah. it, 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 it's harder to keep people aligned when uh, when they're thousands of miles apart. Yeah. So, to be okay, fair, to be fair, a room it. full of engineers is problematic. Yeah, we've actually managed to do uh, due diligence on on two projects. One in Mexico, one in South America, by just utilizing teams on the ground, and it's actually worked very, very efficiently and smoothly. Just build the protocols on site, two days and done. Geol- a couple of you know geologists, an engineer, and a metallurgist. I'm actually amazed how smoothly <laughs> those, those visits happen, um, and it's all being coordinated from Toronto and London. And my CEO's in in Paris, so we've just had to adapt. You know, the team's not the biggest fan of Zoom meetings, but but we're, we're actually getting, we're getting things done remarkably. Uh, but it is right. You're right, Tom. It'd be nice to get on a plane and go to Paris for our monthly team meetings. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think he's very keen on that as well. Like he wants his team together, sitting in a room, talking about ideas and opportunities. Yeah, I think, like, I think organizations will evolve with this and they'll, they'll learn, but there'll be, there'll be probably less travel, but there'll be still need to get people together from time to time. Oh, yeah. 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 She wrote oh, yeah. in. You know, she fully agrees with everybody, what they're saying. She says, we've been able to get a lot done. She's, um, you know, they've been super busy this year, but it somehow doesn't feel real, right? Mm-hmm. Like getting a lot done, but you don't have the excitement. Yeah, but we're all coping with it, right? We're saying, yeah, it's temporary. We'll get back to normal. If if everybody on the everybody on Zoom today, we'd say, you know what? We're not going to see each other anymore. It's almost going to be like this. 
we would probably have a very unfavorable reaction to that. Nothing beats boots on the ground, face-to-face meetings. At the end of the day, we're all coping with it because we know eventually it'll stop. But if we were told it wasn't going to stop and this is how it's going to be from now on, I'm not too sure how personally I would react to that. I'm up for Ontario forming a bubble with Quebec. I'm I'm up to Montreal in the next few months. I'm not waiting much longer than this. Give me a call. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. We're going for a beer. I I, I live on the border with Quebec, but anyway. Well, I can tell you, I had a great feeling. I had a great feeling the other day. My 80-year-old parents got vaccinated, so I was very happy. Yeah, Yeah, my mom. My mom got vaccinated in Florida too last week. So. Um, yeah, probably, I'm probably the only one on the uh, on the call that's had both of their their shots. So wow, yeah. wow. I'm wow. getting my se- I'm getting my second next week as it happens. Yeah, yeah. I've had my first. I've had my first. I'm getting my second next week. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But I think we are going to see these efficiencies. I think there is a going to be a new way of doing mm-hmm. business that can be much quicker, and that saves money. That's more money than quite frankly going into the ground if you're mm-hmm. early stage exploration. Yeah. We've now got the bandwidth to have these VTC calls to share data to sort of have people sign mm-hmm. offices, offices around the world and look at the same screen and look at the same 3D model and both interact with it at the same time. And that's got to be a great thing for how, how we go about doing our business. Yeah, we're going to straddle some times up, but that's surely going to improve efficiency. Yeah, it looks amazing because you know, 10 years ago, you were spending incredible amounts of money for halos and telepresence mm-hmm. rooms and things like that that were very expensive. You just barely never were to sort of just yep. rationalize yep. that lower travel and now you've got it on your ipad so this is you know this is like a ten thousand percent decrease yeah, and, then, and then give it a little bit more time and well whether it's elon musk or whether it's uh the facebook group or whoever is putting these constellation satellites up here we're going to have 5g broadband you know anywhere in the world you're going to have connectivity i'm to a certain extent i'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing um sometimes it's nice to be cut off and the, the emails don't work you know for some of the big data that we're generating now with all the systems around it, the mine monitoring systems, uh, certainly for the ESG and, and, and that side of things, again, that can only be a good, provided it's managed. All right. Well, with that, a cheers to the COVID part of the talk. Yeah. <laughs> it could probably go on all night. Stay safe. And all stay safe, please. So. Do you think we're headed for a new mining super cycle? No, oh, for sure. No, look, I, think, I, I remember getting asked that question back in 2009, 2010. Exactly. And I, yes. I, and yes. I yes. just want to say that at the time, I, I was actually saying, I don't think this is a super cycle. This is a secular shift. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still on that same secular shift. And this is the two to four billion people that actually want to live like Americans, Europeans, Japanese, and everyone else. And they're just consuming more. And you know, what we have now is sort of a turbo boost in that secular shift with this EV conversion. Um, and I think we're going to see even for the mining sector because of ESG and everything, it's going to be harder to get new supply out. So, you know, it looks really good. But I don't I think this is just that continuation of a trend that's that's with us for 20 years. We're going to have highs and lows and, you know, highs will be higher, the lows will be lower. But, uh, you know, it, it looks pretty, pretty good from the fundamental. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be as speculation driven as like the last one, uh, kind of the last down cycle. Like, well, that was look, what's, what's, what about SPAC? Yeah. Can you hear me or? Yeah. No, I'm saying, what about stacks? They're pretty speculative. I mean, this is this has got sort of hyper hyper speculative speculation coming, just starting. I mean, a year from yeah. now, this this is going to be frothy. Have you seen anybody in the mining sector using a spec? You're seeing yep. them approved. Yes. Yeah. There's a couple. Uh, there's been a couple. Yeah. There's a, there was one just launched the other day. They raised three hundred million dollars, and they're going after at least a big project in West Africa. They've filed the listing, and it's ready to go. It's run by the former head of some platinum mine in South Africa. So. 
That's the first one I've seen. And then there's also Deep Green as well. Yeah. They're going to be going um, to a SPAC as well. So Nick, real quick, can you explain for those listening to the podcast who may not know what a SPAC is? Can you explain that? Uh, yeah, I, I briefly can. I'm not no expert at it. I just kind of really reviewed it. It's just like a, a short circuit way to listing. It was used to use, uh, it was kind of a technique or a way to list something super speculative or dodgy in the past. But apparently some people have figured out that it's a very convenient vehicle now is just a kind of a particular type of listing, very low requirements in terms of disclosure. Um, I'm still kind of learning about them, but it's just an easier way to list. It's almost like uh, the venture exchange capital pool pro- program where you can exactly. kind of... Yeah, it's like I have a great idea, and soon enough I'll tell you what's going to happen with all that money. What do you think with these at Faskin? Are you seeing this on the legal side? Yeah, well, obviously, you know, to Nick's comments, uh, you you think about the CPC program, right? Because, I mean, a a bunch of juniors have listed that way. You know, it's still a burdensome program because when you get your acquisition, you still have to disclose it, and you've got a lot of requirements. So it's not... It's not a walk in the park and we're, we're starting to be, SPACs was more, I think more common in the US. We're starting, Toronto on the TSX didn't really take off when it was launched, but uh, we're seeing more of those this, this year and where I think we're actually doing right now, I think two of them. Uh, not necessarily okay. related, related to mining, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's starting to take off. Starting to get some wing in Canada. Here's the, here's the thing, though, with, with, with when I when I when I read about spags, and I actually know some ex, the ex cannabis people who got involved with the United States and a similar thing as well. with spags. It's a bit like the Bitcoin thing, you know, like the the risk that goes with it and the worry that goes with it as well. And one of the biggest issues that I see in our cycle right now, in, in our sector right now, sorry, is the is the lack of real new investment coming into it still, even now, you know. Uh, as you've heard, some of you heard me say before, Eric's Cross is not a new investor in mining. And that's one of the big killers that we have right now is where we get a new, and that's one of the reasons why I think we're actually where we are in our cycle right now is the lack of investment in mining for a number of years. I mean, silver, I mean, people were literally changing the names of their companies to get silver out of their title, SSR mining, silver standard yeah. resources, you know, things like that, changing so that, we're hey, we're not really a silver company anymore. Now, like, people haven't been investing in mining for years and supply and demand, funnily enough, that's where we are with copper, for example, right? And if there's one thing that's going to scare away investors, if they see mining SPACs and people getting into funky new investment vehicles for mining and, and some of those will go sour, it'll scare people people off as well. I remember part recently we were talking EST, you know, like I, I pray for the day when we have more professionalism in, in this in this sector, just in general. Not not at the big side. I mean that's fine, but especially in the junior sector where all the all those speculative investors are, all the day traders are and all the rest, it's like it still is the Wild West. And we will never get you know the levels of investment that we need in this sector until people can see that they can make money and it will be it's not just that speculative, you know, they can make money with a reasonable amount of you know, returns on a regular basis. If we can do that, then we've got people in. But there's there are there are companies that do use the kind of junior model to build and develop companies. Like, you know, it's 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 a model that Ross Beattie has used very effectively, like even Rui Fang with Silver Corp as well, and even more recently with Richard Werke and um, Arizona Silver and also with Solaris Resources is it's like an effective vehicle to raise mm-hmm. capital put an asset in and if it's a legitimate asset they're doing the legwork that you know you did all this work before you list it five three years you list it it, it just shines amongst everything else so there are 
there there are rays of hope in the space and there are people that do are professionals and you know it is effective model for raising capital and making a lot of money to kind of for these projects it just takes people to a lot of the geological legwork and social legwork before to kind of put these assets together so i, I agree with what you're saying mr hopwood and uh for sure it's funny because let's not forget like i'll give you an example in my jurisdiction quebec right i mean before the Eleanor deposit was sold to Goldcorp for 500 million dollars without a resource calculation i'd like to see that again today but before that was sold don't forget noranda was up there in the 70s looking for copper and whatever on that and it's only in the 90s that they started to find some gold uh interesting gold showings and they found they found the deposit 10 years later so we're talking through so phil i mean to your point i mean it's not like it is speculative it's almost like finding a needle in a haystack and it's r d and and I, i'm pretty sure that if you look at any sophisticated mining mining jurisdiction exploration dollars will plummet when there's a bear market and when because I'll give you an example again in Quebec. Yeah. We've shown like over a decade, you know, exploration spike in 2010, 2011. And then when, when everything went to the dumps, the exploration just went way down. The only thing that stayed consistent was the exploration dollars spent by the majors. So it's the, really the juniors that bring that bring the exploration dollars to the table. And uh, so we have to make that model sustainable because we don't have that. We don't have discovery. Anyway, that's my yeah. opinion. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think though that in many ways the discoverers have to start finding something too. Um, you know, we have had a long period of time where we haven't really had these world class yeah. ore deposits, and we need to find some world class ore deposits. Yeah, but you need money to do that, and the last ten years there hasn't been a lot of money around. Yeah. So yeah. Now it's just coming. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Is, Tom, do you th- do you think that there's a sh- shortage of the world class deposits, or we just haven't spent the money and time to find them? I think it's a little of both. I think that I think ge- geologically they're there, but we haven't spent the money to find them. But second, I think that a lot of these ESG issues are going to mean the license operates are going to be harder to get, and you, some areas you're not going to be able to explore that you might have ten years ago. So I think it's going to be a combination of the two. That's why Drew and I are going to be leading everybody back into Afghanistan in a few years. Right? <laughs> well, we'll see. Yes, that, that trillion dollars is still going and begging, but um, I, 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 it's one of the fundamental issues here that we as a industry as a whole have just completely dropped the ball in terms of how we communicate to the masses. By the masses, I mean the Generation X and so on and so forth. You know, the investors that we should be tapping into, um, we are still perceived as being this this mucky beast, this, you know, earth-chewing behemoth that is destroying everything. Uh, and yet the irony is, as we discussed before, Emily, was you want your you want your copper, you want your lithium batteries, all the rest of it, you gotta dig it up. Yeah. And it just needs that penny to drop uh, on some of these and I'll be frank and candid, some of the sort of woke younger generation who are yeah, have plenty of money to burn, but they're 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 throwing it into some of these other things or throwing it a Bitcoin or whatever else. Um, I, mean, I was staggered by that statistic that came out just the other day about the, was it the amount of energy that's being used to mine Bitcoin is equivalent to, I think was it Mexico's power consumption? And it's something we've got to do collectively in the, in the mining sector as a whole to, to redress the balance and actually re- really get on the front foot and say, look, yeah, green green considerations, environmental considerations, social considerations, and so on and so forth. Yes, but if you want your tablet, if you want your wind farm, you've still got to go mine. So quite frankly, suck it up. Well, Emily, millennials to invest by showing six slides about your ore body. Like, I'm sorry. 
but <laughs> well, and, and Emily, that speaks to communication. Uh, what uh, Drew was saying. I mean, how do you how do you bridge that gap? I mean, I have a seem to be twenty year old um, doing engineering who who has taken me to task for the last <laughs> several years about mining. What are you doing in mining? Like, do you know what you're doing in plant Gina? And I and same conversation, Drew. I I just walked her through it. I said, look, you've got a iPhone, you've got a MacBook, you've got a TV, we've got all these things that require uh, material that comes out of the ground. So how do you suggest? And then we, we just talked through it. But it, I mean, that's just one one young adult. But it really, I mean, it is about communication because, you know, even my friends who are, you know, in their <laughs> 30s. In, in a, thank you, Jim, in their 30s. Have, have asked me, like, I don't understand how you can stay in that business. And it, it, it is just this fundamental lack of, of knowledge. And I, I have, mean, it's good, but we've got to hit them at the school level as well. What, yes, what always is amazing at PDAC yeah. is going to PDAC and seeing the school teams that are being taken around and their bright yellow t-shirts and all the yeah. rest of that. Mm. Yeah. It's absolutely fantastic that that sort of piece of the communication, that education is being, is being dealt with. But if you look at sort of further through in the UK, the number of universities that have sacked off their mining courses or the whatever it is. There's, there's plenty of environmental courses out there. Right. But get down to hard drop mining engineering, mineral exploration, so on and so forth. Geology, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. All, all these courses. Yeah. And, and Drew, listen to your point. I mean, if you go, if you look at what Mining Matters is doing, go on their website and look at all the programs that they have to educate the young about what mining is all about. It's, it's fabulous what they're doing. I had the chance of meeting them by Zoom in the last year, and they explained to me their mission. And it's it's really, it's incredible. Obviously, to all those who are interested, I would highly recommend to visit their, their site. You know, it's been a tough year for everybody. And, uh, you know, they they if, if, if ever you want to donate to that cause, I did, because it's really it's really a good cause for, for education, which we should have started a long time ago. Yeah. Those those who don't like us have done a much better job <laughs> in communicating than we have. I agree with what uh, what Drew was saying there about educating and all that kind of stuff. But I also think that the young investors are going to come to the mining space as they... So, you know, there's a lot of distrust of the old generation and all that right now. And there's a lot of folks that have made a lot of money off Bitcoin, GameStop, all this stuff that's going on. But when all that stuff settles down, that same distrust for monetary policy and, and the governments and all that still going to exist. And those folks are educated, you know, these, these young groups, they're educated, they under, they're starting to understand the money that can be made in these, in these areas. I think you're going to see a huge move into the precious metals from the younger group. It's going to take some time, but they're going to realize over time that they can make a huge amount of money and going into gold and silver and all these commodities might be the best way for their store of value once the Bitcoin craze kind of slows down a bit, if it does. And but, I think the challenge that we have is, especially with the younger generation, is we have lost the narrative around mining. Like mining and geology are fascinating stories and there's so much adventure. I mean, I'm looking at all of you. I know all of the crazy places you all have been <laughs> while being in the mining industry. And I know a lot of the stories we won't tell over Zoom, but I know I've heard at a bar a drink, right? I mean, mining is a fun industry that is attractive to people who like adventure, who like to be outside, excited about the environment, right? I mean, like, that's actually the Peter in our industry. And yet we've got this reputation for being like boring and bland and all, excuse me, gentlemen, but old white guys. Like, so, but that's, that's not really the truth when you look at the industry globally, maybe right. on boards or, or the C-suite that, that might be what the representation looks like, but to work in mining, you can travel all over the world and do, I've certainly done a lot of crazy shit. So, I mean, <laughs> 
really different than people think. But we've got to tell that story. And you don't tell a story with data, right? You tell a right. story with story. And I think that's what we miss. We hit people with, and you have to have assays, you have to have ore bodies, you have to have all the, the data, but you've also got to be able to tell the story. With um, your experiences. It's all about your experiences, right? I mean, it's, that's, the, that's the narrative is where you've gone, uh, who you've met, what you've done. I mean, the data will always be there, but it's it's your experiences that really bring bring the whole the whole industry to life, really. Yeah, I agree. That's what we got to show that attracts people into the industry. I think also we we should do a better job of showing how our sector mining is an enabler for that Generation Z economy, mm-hmm. um, the e-vehicles, the all thing. And so, you know, I, I keep telling our whenever I talk with people. I'd like to see pictures of open pits on brochures, but we actually have to show pictures of the products that we produce: solar panels, you know, computers, yeah, iPhones. cell phones. Yeah, we need to show, We need to show that this is that yep. this stuff is needed for you to live the good life you want to live. Well, and I have an interesting point for my friend uh, Frederick. Um, Warburg from Bowdoin. Frederick wrote in to clarify. Uh, he's a, a private wealth management expert. Uh, cryptocurrencies are considered a commodity, not a security by the IRS, which I did not. Oh, know, which is very. Oh, okay. So that means. So does that mean they're regulated by CFTC? I don't know. Frederick, do you know, Fred? <laughs> he said by the IRS and the SEC. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, it couldn't be a commodity if they're regulated by the SEC. Maybe I misread the... I'm, <laughs> oh, yes. I'm joking. Frederick just uh, responded with a question mark. So uh, I think, they're, I think yeah. they're making up the rules as they go. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'd like to know where you go pick it up. Probably, <laughs> when, probably when the no regulatory agency wants yeah. to regulate them. They want to yeah. stay away. I, I, I keep my money in Pokemon cards. That's pretty much what I do. <laughs> <laughs> if you want inside the millennial mind, that's... That's where my mind is at. I'm all in on that right now. We'll see what Charizard. There you go. Yeah, you know. That's like there were all these articles like two weeks ago about people making huge amounts of money by investing in like all these fancy sneaker collections. Like, how do you convince somebody to pay that much for? That's a whole other conversation. But (laughs) But that's you know, but that that communication. That's what. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's what you have to do. Is you have to do show it cool. Like speaking to what Emily saying is about the adventure stuff was, uh, you know, I didn't like mining until I finally got to go visit a mine site. How I was introduced to the industry was yeah. a bunch of kind of pretty slick guys on in Vancouver. You know, not the best introduction for a millennial generation. <laughs> but the more I got to learn it, like it is what it is. Like, and that's what I'm trying to do with visual capitalists. Is we're trying to kind of break it down and show those individual. You know, it's in your hand. It's you know, it's in your car and it's, it's everywhere. And eventually it's going to happen. Like, it just takes time. Is it that people are investing in it because of the technical aspect of Bitcoin versus they don't think mining is technical, right? And is it at some point electronics and stuff, if we don't open up more mines, everything will just become incredibly expensive to where people finally get it, right? I mean, that's... Yep. But mining, all- Mining's not cool right now. Like, that's the thing. Like, I think Bitcoin is cool. You ask anyone, oh, I own Bitcoin. That's a conversation starter. You say you own a miner right now to a a younger folk person that's not yeah. going to get the traction so there's a big part of that is is just perception i think too well part of it's the yeah. story my friend beth who invested in prospector was my first check for prospector and now is a an investor in analog through the acquisition like tells me all the time she loves to go to lunch with her friends and like so what are you up to lately and she's like hmm, i own part of a gold mine in sinaloa <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Like, I mean, it, it, part of it comes down, it's not cool, but if we 
it, it should be cool, but I've always been a nerd. So what do I know? I, th- I think it's cool. And like, I think that that ownership aspect is definitely a part of it. And it's sometimes why I question whether some of these things should be even in the public market, you know, is because too much of the dog and pony show happens before actually anything gets built. So it gets uncool before it's cool kind of thing sometimes. Well, and that's maybe the other thing I always tell people that's different about mining is you can literally pick up the phone and call practically any TSX listed mining company and get to at least a VP, if not the CEO, right? Like, I mean, it's such a small world in a lot of ways that like, if you want to really feel like you own part of a company by buying in, mining is one of the places where you can really do that. I mean, you yep. really know your shareholders and and people really get to know the management team. And I mean, I don't know if, I think that's a differentiator that we don't focus on so much in the industry. No, because sure. they're so desperate for investment. They'll, they'll take your phone call. Will you have your watch at the end of it? I don't know. You know? <laughs> Just one if you're the CEO of a junior, you'll pass most of your time on the phone with investors and your shareholders, right? Yeah. And you better you better hope you have a very good VP exploration and a good some a really good exploration team because technically that's not your job anymore. Just just yep. comment back on the SPACs. If you if you take a SPAC and you put a mining asset into it. By the time the mining asset goes into it, 33 and a third percent of the funds have already been expended. Ooh, wow. So that, that tells you nice. part of why it's so hard for, for the SPACs to actually make it. Yeah, no, that's definitely a huge thing is by the time, you know, all the value has kind of been taken out and the rise of royalties as well, so, you know, if there's not much value left on it by the time an asset becomes cash producing, hopefully by then, if you still have the same shareholders, you know, hopefully you'll get that share price appreciation. Uh, but people want cash flow and people need that cash flow and a dividend. Like it's just, yeah, I think it's definitely a bit of a problem is by the time it gets the asset, the value gets stripped out before. Well, this is something Miranda and I talked about that is a pet peeve of mine. When I sit through and and Phil, and I mean, we've heard a a lot of us talked about this. You sit through back-to-back pitches for people raising money to add value. Value. Right. Yeah. Like, and there, at some point, if you've got enough mineral to like mine it, process it and sell it. Why not do that? Yeah. Well, no. And yeah, Emily, you and I talked about this. I mean, because the nature of the, the, the family office is to deal with near term or producing assets right so so we have the capacity to deploy capital and get, get paid back an ounce of gold but we don't need to see three million or two million or million ounces ahead of it um you know if there's a capacity and and a will and understanding and to to move it into production it's certainly um you know obviously we that that is our our focus right but it's also exciting, right? Like Oh, uh, totally. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, you got gold coming out. Like, who doesn't like that? Like, that's a lot of fun. And that's yeah. something you want to put yeah. that makes That makes such a lot of sense. I mean, that, that, by the way, that was also, I think, a topic that was covered in your podcast with Miranda, wasn't it, Emily? You yeah. talked about that. The, the junior exploration company, the developers who are actually are producing at the same time, maybe 40,000, 50,000 ounces a year, which yep. therefore means they don't have to keep going back, getting capital raises every time they need some more money. That sounds pretty simple and straightforward to me. Mm-hmm. You can make yep. a bit of money. Yeah. Yep. Again, the the focus is on the product, which is what you know we were talking about that we don't do. They just focus on the Bitcoin. Nobody really understands or to a great deal how it's made. I mean, you talk what's the the carbon emission 
cost of a Bitcoin. It's got to be, like we were talking about, astronomical compared to to gold or copper, um, especially if you take out transportation, right, out of the the gold or copper cycle. Sounds like a Nick. Sounds like a visual capitalist. uh... We're working on it. We're on the case right now. Right. Alerted the team about it, and they're working on it right now. It'll be out tomorrow morning. Okay, thank you. But I, I think that's a, I think that's a good a good point. You know, I think you could probably figure out what the amount of electricity globally is used to produce gold. All the gold in the world right now. You could probably come up plus or minus ten percent. What what that is, and compare that with how much electricity is being used for Bitcoin. I suspect you'll find that more electricity is being used for Bitcoin and several orders of magnitude than gold. The mouth just opens. They just they they can't they yeah. can't comprehend that. The transactions too. If you want to use it to buy a cup of coffee, you're using a lot more power than that coffee mm-hmm. consumed. Yeah. And if, if people saw this, they'd be become uranium nuts by tomorrow. It's just in terms of the energy output of yeah. your material. You know, people kind of don't understand that a little bit about why we continue to use fossil fuels. Like there's these simple truths that kind of geology. And minerals and material science reveal that, like, that it's just not making it into the mainstream. That, you know, if you just literally laid it out in a picture saying, yeah, you can get like power 10,000 cars with a rock of uranium, you know, that, that makes the case for mining just right there. It's just, it's not clicking in, in younger people's heads. I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. But there's a reason why Bill Gates is, is heavy into uranium and stuff like these different groups, right? Like they realize that for climate change and all that kind of stuff, the only logical way to reduce emissions is going to the nuclear, right? You have to go to that kind of power source. You can't be doing solar panels and wind farms across the U.S. to try to power this, power the country. But starting to see, I mean, Tesla is in lithium now, right? I mean, several deposits. You, know, I think Apple and Samsung both got into cobalt um, to vertically integrate. So I wonder if that will help. I'm, I'm seeing a few more questions about like why this disconnect and maybe when they're integrated fully into a product company, then all the marketing benefits of Tesla and Apple and Samsung will trickle down to to the minerals they're mining. Maybe Tesla just bought into natural gas in a big way. Oh, so we, we talk about vertically integrated companies, which I seem to recall was a fashion of the 1980s and 1990s. Well, remember <laughs> that Tesla is uh, moving and, all, and, and all, all, all the coal companies were owned by the oil companies, and all the uh, steel companies were vertically integrated with iron ore producers. And, and the 1880s. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, but Tesla, Tesla is moving their operations from California to Texas, and they just bought a huge natural gas play yeah. in Texas, uh, assumedly to support to actually supply their plants. Now, that probably includes uh, SpaceX as well as Tesla. Well, we're coming up on 45 minutes, which has flown by much like real time. All right. Favorite place you've been to on a mining-related trip? Danielle, you're at the top of my screen, so you get to go first. And you've been to some fun places. I've been to some fun places. So it's it's hard for me to pick one, I'll just say. How do you, how do you pick between uh, the elephants in Botswana, the northern light in the Canadian tundra, Venezuela, Cuba, Ecuador? I'm very fortunate in that regard. So I'm not going to pick one. I'm just going to let that go. <laughs> would be those beer halls in Venezuela that you told me you used to hang out there. (laughs) It wasn't even a beer hall. hall. It was a street corner, the Licoria. I don't know if anybody got to Venezuela back in the day in the 90s. Well, you couldn't go into the beer hall because it was so loud. So all the foreigners stood on the street corners and they sold beer polars in tiny little cans. So to buy around, you'd go into the Licoria, six beers, like cost 30 cents maybe and you go out 
and they stand on the corner. And we had masses of uh, expats standing on the corner complaining about how rough life was in Venezuela. <laughs> yeah, a lot of fun back in the day. You're below Danielle. Tom, what's your what's your favorite place? I'm working toward my 100th country. I have had a big setback over the past year with COVID. I would have been just knocking on that door. So um, I, I think there are countries that have really been enjoyable all the time. One, I would say, interesting, it wasn't for prospecting, it was to take family to Antarctica. And I remember mm-hmm. we were going on this one of these little boats, and there was all this calcopyre or malachite staining on the uh, flip edge. And I said, there's a mine there. And I had a lot of shocked people in the boat. Yeah, they're like, please don't go mine. The- <laughs> like, kick you off. <laughs> All right, Miranda, you're next on my on my screen. Well, like like Danielle, I mean, I, I'm not a geologist, but I've I've had the opportunity from a from a funding perspective to to travel to many many places. I have to say, one of the most the most interesting was Portugal. I, I had the opportunity to go into northeast Portugal to look at a a high grade tungsten deposit. Part of the visit was to to take a look at an old past producing mine where where there was a an old head frame and add it. And you could actually see carve outs at surface where the Romans had actually pulled out material, like the way that, that they had uh, used mercury to, to extract uh, gold. It was absolutely fascinating. I mean, it was probably the last, one of the last places on earth I ever expected to be to be looking at, a, at an opportunity, but it was it was fascinating. I mean, and it was literally the, the deposit and, and there was obviously complexity because it was in a valley um, in these horizontal beds of shielite, but right beside a port winery. So, so there was a lot of a lot of discussion about what's going to happen when these guys actually, you know, they're they're going to have to mobilize to 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 expand the operation. It was a really interesting. It was a really interesting trip. Yeah. Yep. Now, Phil, over to you. You're oh, next. Wow. I, I've been to some interesting bars in, in, over the years. I'll tell you what, one place though that I thought was the most fascinating. I'll give you an Australian story. I was once at a lead and zinc mine in a place called Cobar in country New South Wales. It's about four hours away from uh, Broken Hill and in the middle of nowhere. But what was really interesting about it was sometimes in the in the Australian outback, you, when you get a lot of rain, the whole place kind of blooms and uh, it becomes green. And, and it only lasts for like a while and then the climate kind of goes back and, and it goes back to the desert that it was beforehand. But to be there at a time when actually everything is green and basically the snakes are kind of um, crossing the road, everything, all life is kind of just with that little bit of time. It's just absolute blooming. It was just, it was actually quite spectacular. And also, there's not many places in the world where, you know, you, you kind of go and you turn on the, the sink in your bathroom and the cold water is hot because, you know, <laughs> and, and the gap under the door is like this big because, you know, it's pretty straightforward there anyway. But that was, that was, a, that was a pretty good place. And the, um, and then the and the and the bar though was pretty good as well. I have to. Always a good. You gotta you gotta check in there. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's cool. Drew, you are next on the scorecard. Oh, is that me? Greg. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to go back to what was really probably my first uh, experience of exploration was in Yemen. Mm. Um, this was in 2002 when when it was relatively stable, let's say, pretty accessible and. I, I spent a fantastic three months uh, working on a, um, a zinc oxide project. Uh, but the his, this was a project that was thought to um, be pre-Islamic. There were uh, ancient workings there. It was purported to be the Queen of Sheba's silver mine. And just steeped in history, um, the 
cultural side of things, working with the, the, the locals, the, the local military, uh, are, are a very interesting experience in more ways than one. Since there seems to be a bit of an alcohol theme through some of these stories as well, I had home, <laughs> I had homebrew an out-of-date Guinness from the Embassy Club uh, to consume. But yeah, fantastic three months, just what an experience. Amazing scenery, steeped in culture, uh, and slightly bonkers as well. Uh, and it was, that was great. I just I thoroughly enjoyed that, and that kind of set the set the precedent for a lot of the other locations I've been to since, I suppose. But there we go. So yeah, that, that, that's me. All right, Chad, your turn. Uh, this one wasn't my favorite at the time, but it's one of my more favorite stories now. So I was up in northern Canada, up in the in Nunavut, sleeping in a bush tent in the camp, and um, I woke up one morning to the tent completely pressed to my face. You know, I thought, oh, it must have snowed. And I was pretty cuddly, cozy, so I just stayed there beside the stove, laying there, and then the bear bell started going off. Suddenly, the snowbank ran away and oh. got off my tent and turns out I'd been spooning I'd been spooning with a grizzly bear for <laughs> Um, so that, yeah, that was, that's probably my favorite now, not so much when it happened. But. <laughs> that's good. Okay. Yeah. Emily. Yeah. I, wasn't paid, I wasn't paid enough for that at the time. Paul, yeah. <laughs> over to you. Probably my favorite was a visit to the autonomous region of Nicaragua. This was after one of the big hurricanes, and I went in with a group that was trying to harvest the timber that had been knocked down by the hurricane in one of the autonomous regions. And the only way you could get there was either take a an old school bus, and it took three days to get there on the old school bus, or you went in by helicopter. The only people in that area were indigenous people who were living on the, on the rivers. And I say they were indigenous. They actually mixed of Caribbean and Hispanic, and they didn't speak either Spanish or English. They spoke one of those uh, mixed up languages they'd made up themselves, but it was absolutely fascinating. The only way the people that were there got around was either by canoe or motorcycle. There were no trucks, no cars. You know, you just, you, you realize what a wilderness it was and how few people and compared to the rest of the world or even the rest of us of Nicaragua for that matter. Mm-hmm. So that that's one of my favorite trips. And is that when you, Jim used to have a coffee plantation in Nicaragua? Uh, plantation is a misnomer. A coffee farm, yes. Maybe I still have it. Hard to tell these days, <laughs> but the land is still there. Uh, I don't know whether anybody's expropriated it yet or not, but uh, farm's still there. Coffee prices are, at, in real terms, are at historic lows. Uh, if you're paying $5 for your cup of coffee, realize that the poor coffee farmer lost money to sell that coffee to you. That's crazy. Yeah. We, we flew over a couple of uh, the mining projects there in uh, Nicaragua in getting to, the, uh, to this timber project, by the mm-hmm. way. There's been a lot of work in the mining area, but... Basically, you have to give every get every project approved by the president. Oh, uh, yeah. That's executive buy-in, Jim. Yep, that's right. <laughs> He's the executive and you have to buy him in. <laughs> well, with that comment, over to Frank. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, when you first asked the question, I was thinking about it. And I remember this one day I was on a business trip in Gabon and I spent at the chance at the Spend the day uh, in an island, which was a natural reserve off the coast of Libreville. It was such a memorable day. It was beautiful. But then I I got thinking about, well, what was my most memorable moment? And it was 2014, uh, World Cup, Brazil. Mm. I'm in Algeria on a business trip. I'm eating at a restaurant that's really got a view on the whole town and on the Bay of Algeria. Algeria is playing Russia in the quarterfinal. And they won that night. 
we could hear from the restaurant the whole town scream every time Algeria scored a goal. And then at the end of the game, the, the restaurant owner comes to us with the bill. Goes, you get, you guys better get going. It's going to get crazy. <laughs> so we paid our bill. We paid our bill, and uh, and we were staying at the same hotel uh, and we that we were staying at uh, when we went in 2019. And I literally did not fall asleep before five o'clock in the morning because it, it was just so crazy in the streets. Yeah. People were just celebrating because so it was it was it, it was a memorable night just to live that moment in another country that was so proud of being be, beating uh, Russia in the, in the World Cup. Well, what a great story to end on. So many fun adventures in the industry. And, you know, if we were at PDAC, some of us might still be wandering through the streets at 4 a.m. ourselves. Um, if we- <laughs> of course we would. <laughs> Yeah. The loose moose, right, everybody? Which, uh, yeah. But um, well, thank you all so much. It's tears to everybody. Thanks again for joining us on the rocks over the last two months, and can't wait to see you guys all in person. Yeah. Cheers, guys. Thank you, Emily. Cheers, you everybody. Bet. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Al. Thank you to our many guests for joining us on this episode of On the Rocks. To learn more about all of our guests, please visit their On the Rocks podcast episode. For more about Prospector, go to prospectorportal.com or check us out on Instagram at prospectorai and LinkedIn at prospectorportal. Thanks for joining us on The Rocks. Until next time, keep your glasses full and your ice cold. Cheers.